the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions, maybe just general questions about what we believe and why we believe it. All you have to do is call us, and we'll do the best we can to answer your questions. You can call us at 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send them in to us that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit one button, call now, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, one more time, our main number is 340 585. We are at the end of another week. That means it's church weekend for everybody. So uh, as I try to encourage you often, go to church with a mission. Ask God to make those divine appointments to show you people who are lost and hurting, uh, people who are in need, um, and and then befriend them. Uh, Let them know how much God loves them. Engage them in conversation. Maybe take somebody to uh, whatever you do at church in terms of service and include them in that. But get them involved in the body of Christ. When people are hurting, that's the most important thing that we can do is just get them involved. Make them feel a part of the family. So wherever it is you go to church, do that this weekend. We have Bible study here tonight. Uh, I'm going to finish Acts chapter 27 tonight. Um... Um, I think it's an interesting study, Uh, and then on Sunday we're going to begin Luke chapter 8, and we're going to sort of discuss the very first parable, the parable of the sower. Okay, let's get right to questions, and we'd love your live phone calls. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, I'm a young man who has been saving himself for marriage. I just found out the girl I love is not a virgin. How should I respond? Um, anonymous, uh, this is one of those things you got to pray through. Now, here's what I can tell you. If you love this girl, um, you said the girl you love is not a virgin, uh, here's an opportunity for you to um, be like Jesus. Extend forgiveness to her. You fell in love with her for a reason. If you believed up to this point that um, God brought her into your life, Um, Well, he knew she wasn't a virgin, if that was the case. Bless her heart for letting you know that she's not a virgin. But um, here's what you do. You forgive. You forgive. I think it's just a little, and I don't mean this personally, Anonymous, but I think it's a little self-righteous to expect that people are going to be perfect. You've got all kinds of sins in your background that she may not know about. Well, this is her sin. 
and I'm sure she has others, nobody's perfect, but here's an opportunity to be gracious and forgiving, to reaffirm her. Uh, I will say this as well. I've had this situation come up several times. And uh, every time when the one who was a virgin rejected the one who was not, there was great damage done. It's almost like you're holding that person to a standard that is impossible to keep. Can you be disappointed? Of course. But here's the thing you just pray for. If God brought her into your life, you're going to want her to stay there. So I hope that helps you. And it's just one of those things that you really need to prayerfully consider. If it's something that's just a deal breaker for you, um, examine your own heart very, very carefully. And I would add very deeply. And if after doing that, you can still point a finger and say, well, you've let me down this way, then, then do whatever you feel like you're led to do. But what an opportunity to be like Jesus. Here is a question from Rich. Richie, actually, I'm sorry. Uh, he says, I don't drink alcohol. My friends at school make fun of me because of it. Should I drink to fit in? Um, Richie, I'm assuming, hoping at least you're high school age, but um, um, I applaud you not drinking. Um, and I think as your friends at school make fun of you, the most important thing you can do is be a witness to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And here's what you tell him. You say, you know what, I'm a, I, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And that kind of behavior, I don't want any part of it. Richie, let me also say this. Uh, I'm speaking from experience here. Now, in high school, believe me, I wasn't a Christian. But I've never had a drink of alcohol in my life. I'm 100 years old, and I've never had a drink of alcohol in my life. I, 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 I actually took a drink and spit it out because it was so nasty. It was so foul. And my friends would laugh at me and say, oh, come on, you'll get used to it. And I just thought, well, that's dumb. How stupid is it to get used to something that tastes that bad? And, and just I just have never had a, a, a temptation at all to take a drink. And I have been in settings, especially in business before I was a Christian, where there was a lot of pressure on me to drink. I've had people say, well, I can't do a business deal with you if you won't drink with me. Okay, no business deal then. And I think there are times when we take a stand for what we believe that people will notice. Now, if your friends make fun of you, then you can, in a good-natured way, sort of throw it back at them, say, look, I've seen you guys when you were drunk, and you're not having fun. But here's what you have to do is you've got to be true to what you believe is the right thing to do. And as a Christian, if drinking alcohol alcohol, uh, is a violation of your conscience, then you don't want to do it at all. I'd also add this. If I'm right and you're a high school-aged young man, nobody in high school should be drinking. I'm not naive. I know they do. But nobody in high school should be drinking. And, Richie, you're tough enough. If your friends make fun of you, you're tough enough to survive that. And ultimately, they will respect you more. Um... They may want to drag you into their sin, but ultimately, when you take a stand and let them know why you're taking that stand, it's for Jesus, they will respect you, and who knows, maybe some of those friends will get saved. By all means, don't drink or any other kind of sinful activity just to fit in, because that's where lots of problems are going to occur. So, stand your ground, Richie. God bless you for doing it. Uh, Here's a question from Andrew. I says, what race was Jesus, and do we know what he looked like? Uh, Andrew, the only thing we know about what Jesus looked like comes from uh, Isaiah chapter 53. I think it's in verse 2, where it says there was nothing about him that would attract us to him. In other words, Jesus was a very ordinary-looking person. He would look much like um, the other Jews in in the, the area where he was born and raised. Uh, so, so he looked just like very typical Jewish man. He probably, uh, the average height for a Jewish man was five six, five seven, uh, two thousand years ago. Um, he probably had very Semitic features. 
um, um, and and you know he just would have fit in with the crowd. He he wouldn't be extraordinary tall or handsome. People wouldn't be able to look at him and say, "Wow, now that guy's got to be God," because there was nothing at all that would attract us to him based on his physical appearance. And it's the only clue we have. What race was he? He was a Jew. Um, he, he was Middle Eastern. And so we can turn on the news and see what people in the Middle East look like now. And pretty much that's what Jesus would have looked like. Now there's something interesting that occurred to me, Andrew, when I was thinking about this question. You know, we have so many pictures of Jesus. We've all seen them. We've got a little glow, a little plate on his head. Uh, we see uh, pictures of a very blonde Jesus, I think, of the greatest story ever told. Um, uh, Max Van Sito, I think, was the, the actor who played Jesus. And he looked anything but Jewish. Had this brown, blondish hair and green eyes. And that wouldn't look like Jesus. We have pictures of him in every culture has pictures of Jesus, especially religious cultures, Catholic cultures in particular. They have pictures of Jesus, and in all of those pictures, Jesus looks like the people of his day, or, or the people, I'm sorry, of that culture. Um, you know, if you go to the Philippines, they don't have pictures of Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, he's very Asian, very Filipino looking. If you, you go into Hispanic culture, Jesus would look Hispanic. And I don't think there's anything wrong with those pictures because Jesus was very common. He was uh, a man who came to die for the sins of everyone without exclusion. And so I'm not one of those who thinks a picture of Jesus is a graven image and we shouldn't try to imagine what he looks like. Um, I think it's instinctively sort of programmed into us to wonder these questions. But the reality is we don't know what he looks like. He was Jewish, um, but it's perfectly okay. It's perfectly okay to think that Jesus was just like us because he became like us. And so I think that's a, a healthy perspective to have, Andrew. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. You never know what's going to happen on Fridays. Lots of phone calls or hardly any, but I'm running out of questions if we don't get any phone calls. Here's a question from Mitchell. Pastor Ron, was the American Revolution a violation of Romans 13? This, to me, Mitchell, is a really, really interesting question, and not just because of, of the answer, the direct answer I'm going to give you, but because of the power and the sovereignty of God. Uh, let me explain. Uh, I, I, I do believe that the American Revolution was a violation of Romans 13. Um, while there were some Christians among those who initiated the revolution, some of our founding fathers were Christians, others were deists, there were some who were unbelievers as well. But um, the reason they revolted um, was um, ba basically taxation without representation. And uh, Romans 13 says that unless your government is asking you to do something that is sinful, then we're to submit to the governing authorities. So I think by definition, Mitchell, the American Revolution would then be a violation of Romans 13. Now here's the thing. It doesn't negate the legitimacy of, of our, our nation or our, our search for independence. Uh, in fact, I think what this really speaks about is the sovereignty of God. Uh, God used even that which might have been birthed in sin, and he used it to, to work all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. One of the things that we know undeniably about our country's existence, now, you know, our country was founded in 1776, that sounds like a long time ago, but as world empires go, America is, is basically an infant. So while we feel old, we're really not, and yet God raised this nation up miraculously, and he did so because he had a purpose. Now let me tell you, Mitchell, what I think that purpose was. I think God established this country at just the right time to let us develop and become strong. And as we developed and became strong militarily, we became strong financially. Um, we, beyond any doubt, no matter how 
many people might disagree with you in the political context today, um, we were the greatest, the most prosperous nation on the face of the earth for a very, very long time. Some would argue that we still are. I'm not sure that I would agree with that. But God raised the United States of America and used us to be Israel's protector. God knew that in 1948, Israel was going to be regathered into their homeland, and the whole world was against that. And yet we were the ones who had the military strength that permitted them to do so, standing against the whole world. We know what happened in World War II. We know about the Holocaust and the slaughter of more than six million Jews. But God used all of that to turn the world's heart, to make it right with Israel, and we did that by allowing them to return as a nation into their original homeland, something which has never been done uh, in, in the history of, of any people in any country. And we were, are, their protector. We're their biggest ally, we're their greatest advocate, and we always have been. Now, things are changing now, and we're trying to sort of arm wrestle Israel into giving away Jewish property. The media, of course, is completely turned against Israel has been, it's the enemy of our souls, not the media, but the devil who is behind turning the media against Israel. He is the prince of the air, we're told. And yet Israel somehow is still there, surrounded by nations who have vowed to wipe them from the face of the earth. Why? Because Jesus needs a place to return to. And you didn't ask this, Mitchell, but one of the things to think about as we proceed in these last days, the more of the world that turns against Israel and the reduced role of America in being Israel's advocate signals the fact that Jesus is ready to return. In spite of the fact that the American Revolution may have been born in sin, God still used everything, the good things and the bad things, to accomplish his will. And believe me, Mitchell, it is God's will that Israel remains safe and secure for his people, the Jews, until Jesus returns. Here's a question from Jenner, Jennifer. She says, I'm having difficulty understanding the parables of Jesus. I get confused. Can you help? Uh, Jennifer, I can, but let me, let me invite you to church this Sunday uh, because we're in Luke chapter 8, and we're going to be studying the first parable that appears uh, in Luke. Uh, and it is also the foundational parable uh, to all of the other parables. If you want to understand the parables, Jesus said in Mark's gospel regarding the same parable, that if you don't understand this one, how can you understand any of the parables? So it's the one that sort of gives us the symbolism for all of the others. So I'm going to talk about that at length this Sunday as we begin uh, our study in Luke chapter 8. A couple of things that will help you, Jennifer. Each of the parables has one and sometimes two main points. And if you try to go outside those two main points, then we really get goofy and the parables become almost nonsensical. So Jesus is just making a point. What's the point of the parable? Uh, the parable of the sower is that we're to scatter the Word of God. We're to do it generously wherever we go. We're not to worry about the kind of heart that the, the seed of the word falls on, but we're just to scatter. That's why it's called the parable of the sower. Um, if we try to read too much into it, in this parable there are people that try to make it a parable about salvation or eternal security. You know, can you lose your salvation? Was this group saved or wasn't that group saved? Um, that's to miss the point of the parable altogether. And all of the parables 
Jennifer, every one of them have one main point that Jesus is trying to make. And the reason he's using parables and part of your difficulty in understanding is he's using illustrations. Now, if I were to use a sports illustration or a, a, a popular movie illustration, everybody would nod their head and they'd get it. Well, Jesus was using very familiar illustrations to the culture that he preached to. They're, that they're foreign to us doesn't mean they were foreign to the other cultures. In fact, just the opposite is true. Every time Jesus told a parable, people got mad at him because they knew exactly what he was saying. So, um, read them for the main point. Read them repeatedly. Repetition is so valuable as we read them. Keep the definitions for the symbols in the parables straight in your heart and in your mind. Uh, and then maybe come to church here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday because I'll be talking about this in more detail. Uh, one other thing, Jennifer, and I don't know how um, in-depth you want to get, but there is sort of a, a book everybody has to have in their library if they're going to try to understand the parables. And it's just called The Parables of Jesus by a man named Herbert Lockyer. Uh, and it is, I think, the authoritative work on the parables of Jesus. Not a lot of speculation, um, not all kinds of theories thrown out, but just this is what he said, these are the symbols, this is what it means. Uh, and I've found it over the years very, very helpful. You know, Jennifer, my pastor, before he went to be with Jesus, he used to say uh, when asked this question, well, do you have any tips on teaching the parables? His uh, stock answer was, yeah, don't try to teach them till you've been studying them for 30 years. Now, <laughs> that doesn't really help us, but um, what he was really saying is, look, when he started teaching the parables, he probably didn't do a very good job of it because he didn't really understand them. So, Jennifer, uh, they're, they're, they're so rich and so valuable. Please don't be discouraged. Just dig in. We're inside five minutes for this half of the program. Remember, we'd still love your live calls and questions. This is a question from Anonymous. Uh, some churches have gay or lesbian pastors, so how can you say being gay is sin? Um, those churches that have gay and lesbian pastors um, don't have pastors um, because they're in sin and they have no business teaching the Word of God. It's just that simple. We don't have to guess about this, Anonymous. This is one of those things that we don't have to wonder, well, you know, maybe this could be the Word of God, New Testament and the Old. Everybody says, well, yeah, but the Old Testament, we ignore parts of it, so why don't we ignore that part of it? Well, the New Testament, Paul, in the book of Romans, the first chapter, he makes it really, really clear. In 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians chapter 5, um, he, he talks about the things that, um, I call it the bad fruit of the evil one, the things that we do that if we live like this, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that can't be any more clear. So the fact that a church that says I'm a Christian, but has a pastor who is living a lifestyle that stands in opposition to the very clear teaching of Scripture, is not a Christian church at all. And as a pastor, Anonymous, this so breaks my heart because what happens is, especially in the culture that we live in, where they're demanding complete and, and unqualified acceptance and affirmation, um, what happens is when, when somebody like me will preach a message or somebody like me will counsel somebody, if they don't like my counsel because they want to keep on sinning, they're just going to go find a church that says, no, what you're doing is okay. And when that happens, we're causing people, Jesus' little ones, to stumble. So these are issues that we really have to understand. And we have to stand firm because we represent Jesus. Remember, our opinions don't matter. With the culture that we live in, says or thinks doesn't matter. The only thing that has any value at all is what does Jesus say? What does the Bible say? And as Christians, we have to draw the line. I've said before, and I'll take this, we got two minutes left, so I'll take this to the end of this break. 
I've said before that this is the social issue that is going to divide the church. Jesus draws a line in the spiritual sand. On one side, he he finds people who have decided that what he said he didn't really mean, or that because things have changed, he's okay with it. Well, that's the wrong side of the line to be in. On the other side, and it's getting to be a, a, a smaller and smaller group of people, on the other side, those people say, nope, God said it, and that settles it for me. I believe it. And we need to be among those Christians who say, Jesus, I stand for you, and I stand with you. Holiness matters. Now, just so you don't think that I'm being sort of old-fashioned, the same thing is true for Christians who are living together, professing Christians who are living together, having sex with people they're not married to. That kind of behavior is sinful and is identified in both the Corinthians passage and in the Galatians passage as lifestyles, which if you live like this, if that characterizes your behavior, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. What he's saying is you're not saved. You're not saved, and you can have whatever opinion you want to have. But remember, real believers have to agree with Jesus. Real believers have to agree with our Christ. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. It's the Friday edition of the Word to Stand Up for Life. We will be back in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. I, I hate saying this, but our final 30 minutes of the week, time goes so fast. 340-9585. Let's go to San Antonio, Texas and talk with Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for hearing me begging for calls. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. You know, first I want to say it's a real blessing for the nights that we can't get to study that you have it online. Uh, that is so fantastic. I listened Wednesday night, and in Second uh, Samuel 24, verse 17, it says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And then it goes on to say some stuff. But my point and sort of my question is, um, it must have been absolutely terrifying and yet maybe glorious at the same time to, to see this angel. Hmm. And which angel could it have been? And how did um, David know it was an angel? I, I think if I saw one, I would turn into a puddle or something. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> really. So those, those are all my comments. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate Bye. it. God bless. Um, you know, Cindy, we would all turn into a puddle. I like that term. We know that because um, in Scripture, whenever anybody saw um, an angel from heaven, it was a terrifying thing. We, we think of these cute little chubby cherubim, um, these warring angels, these powerful angels. Daniel uh, wrote that he fell at his, at, as dead. Um, it, it just These angels, their holiness and their power takes our breath away. Um, we know from the First Chronicles account that David wasn't the only one who saw it, that Aaronah, or King James calls him Ornan, um, also saw the angel, and that's one of the reasons he was so eager to, to give his uh, threshing floor away for free. Um, they needed mercy. To see this, this warring angel with a sword of judgment and wielding it and people dying. Now, it's not a, a literal sword where he's stabbing people, but it's just a sword of judgment. It was a plague. And 70,000 people died. So that kind of power, Cindy, would make all of us take note. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, we don't know which angel it was. Um, we know that one angel... One night killed 185,000 Assyrians. Uh, so, I mean, we're talking real terrifying power here. And um, uh, in, in particular, um, in this case, um, David proved to have made the right choice to, to 
fallen into the hands of a God who he knew would be merciful. Um, I really, really, Cindy, enjoyed that study Wednesday night, so I'm glad you got to go online and listen to it. Uh, our last two studies in the um, book of Second Samuel, I think, were really, really important. You know, there's times when I'm doing a Bible study, and I just get the sense as I'm preparing it or putting it all together, I get the sense that God really wants to do something special. And these last two studies, um, uh, the chapters that are not in chronological order in David's life, I think the, the, the Holy Spirit placed them um, in the position he did to, to, to make us think about certain things. And um, I believe that, uh, that uh, those were studies that, that God really wanted people to hear. So, Cindy, you're you're absolutely right. We would all melt at the sight of a real angel if we saw uh, him in all his holiness. In particular, this is this appears to be a a warring angel uh, wielding the sword of judgment, and judgment is always a very very scary thing. Great question. Thank you, Cindy. This is a question from Ken Pastoran. I like going to a lot of churches for different perspectives. Is that a good approach, or should I stick with just one or two churches? Ken, uh, there's nothing wrong with with visiting other churches. Um, um, I'm not so sure I like your use of the term perspectives. Our perspective needs to be formed by the Bible rather than um, the, the different styles or, or the perspectives from the church. Um, uh, I think if we don't know our Bibles, we're not going to be able to evaluate whether or not their perspective is a good one or not. But here's the biggest problem I have with the question, Ken. Uh, We who are Christians need to be a part of one body. Church is just not going to hear a Bible study or sing the songs at the beginning of the worship service. Church is being a part of something greater than ourselves, being a part of His body. And a lot of times, Ken, and I'm not saying this is you, I don't know you, but a lot of times people that go to a bunch of different churches do so because they don't want to invest in a church body. They don't want to make sacrifices for other people. They don't want to be asked to serve or, in some cases, give. Um, but we need, it's it's more important than I can communicate adequately, uh, we, we need to be part of a body. And if occasionally on a Wednesday night, instead of going to your church, you want to go visit another church, there's nothing wrong with that. But make sure that you're anchored in to a body of believers. We call anybody who visits here more than twice a a member. We don't have official membership. But what we do tell people is that they really need to invest in the people around them. They need to be available to be used by the Lord. And it's not just about going and hearing a Bible study. It's it's much more important than that. It's about being in a position to be a minister, an ambassador for Jesus to people in your body. Um, we need to, dis- to, to develop a, a, a standing in the church so that people know that we're available, know that we're dependable. And the only way we can do that is to pour ourselves out for a church body. So, Ken, I hope that answers your question. It is more important than I can tell you. What we see here at Calvary Chapel, I'm sure every other pastor would tell you this, is that when people really get excited about the Word of God, and that excitement is demonstrated through service to that body, that's when their life really begins to blossom spiritually. That's when their relationship with Jesus becomes real, because it's not just taking in, it's giving out. And he's our example, Jesus is. He gave everything for us. Think about it. He gave everything. And so often in our church culture, we think of going to church as that hour and 20 minutes that we spend uh, in a sanctuary on a Sunday morning. Um, well, we should all go to church. David said in our study last Wednesday night, I will not give that to the Lord, which costs me nothing. I think a lot of us, we kind of have the attitude that just going to church is our responsibility. And Jesus would say, no, it's not going to the church, it's being the church that's your responsibility. It's the way to grow. Here's a question from Carlos. 
Carlos says, what is the best way to lead a high school Bible study in order to reach kids? Uh, Carlos, God bless you for asking. I don't know if you are a high school Bible teacher or what, or you have a calling to be, but there's only one way to lead a high school Bible study, and that's study the Bible. Study it for yourself personally. Study it to teach it. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Let the Lord speak through you. Your job is to declare the word. Your job isn't to, to determine whether or not they get it. You know, their level of interest means nothing. When you um, are teaching the Bible, and you're doing it, as I said, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, that means you're doing it in context. And the application is so rich that you're going to touch these kids' lives. But they first got to get excited about the Word of God. They don't do that with stories. They don't do that with topical Bible studies. Just declare what the Bible says. This is what it says. This is what it means. And this is how we apply it in our lives. If you can do that, you're going to find some kids because the Spirit of God always works the same way. You're going to find some kid who gets really excited about it. Jesus is going to use him to get other kids excited about it. And pretty soon you have a bunch of people sitting at your feet in Bible study because they want to hear more and they have great questions. And So that's the best way. There's no other way to try to be the cool kid on the block. I think I used an illustration in, in a recent Bible study. Um, we've gotten to the place where we're so cool um, that we want the kids to think we're cool. And we've changed our youth groups into entertainment groups. We've put beanbag chairs and sofas and air hockey games and um, sit them in chairs, treat them like students, and declare the Word, the Word, the Word, and let the Spirit of God take over. You know, Carlos, um, I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in this program, but here at Calvary Chapel, we've got sort of a mini revival going in our junior high group. Now, keep in mind, most of these kids were born and raised here. Um, but like all the other kids, you know, they sort of go to Bible studies and go through the motions. They know all the right things to say. But um, we have a, a junior high teacher who's really, really passionate about the Word. Um, his kids are getting excited about the Word. They can't get enough. Even when uh, we have a holiday, uh, we have a, a junior high study on Monday nights uh, as well as Sunday, but Monday nights as well. On Monday nights when, when the, the adults don't, uh, last week, for example, on holiday, um, the, the adults didn't have their Bible study, but the kids still want to. And that's because they're excited about the Word. That's the only way to do it. You can't reach them, but God's Spirit can. And when you're looking at a high school group, here's the best way to look. you got um, four years, freshman, junior, or freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior years, to equip those kids to go out into the world that's going to try to steal their faith. So trust the Word. Having them in church doesn't really matter if they're not being church, if they're not being equipped to go out into the world. So our job isn't just to raise them and, and graduate them and then go on to the next group. Our job is to equip them to, to walk with Jesus in a world that denies him. So I hope, Carlos, that that helps. And There's just no shortcut. There's no shortcut. Um, right here. Okay, here is an email that just came in from uh, to our inbox anonymously. Um, he says, or she says, I don't know, I'm a long-time listener to your show and appreciate your heart for the people of God to get his word out to use, or to us, in a proper and loving manner without your personal opinion unless we ask for it. What I wanted to comment about is that as of late, I've noticed a lot fewer calls are coming into your show and I know you mention it quite a bit. That's not a complaint, but to encourage us to call. It's not your fault. Your job is to answer the questions that we have our time figuring out that we don't understand. With that in mind, do you think the calls are fewer now than they were in the past? My thought, I think that due to today's socioeconomic climate, our present state in politics and our standing in the world has people asking one of two questions. What do we do? Or I can't handle it anymore. 
in calling you, people will get the answer, what do we do? Uh, those who can't handle it anymore, don't want anything, uh, don't want to do anything about it, so they just won't call. Of course, it could also mean that you've taught us when we don't have any more pressing questions. Wouldn't that be nice? God bless you and Miss Paula and your ministries. Thank you so much uh, for the kindness. You know, I think there's two things, really, and, and it's been... Uh, um, sort of this way, a show that's on every day, and we get so many questions that are repeated um, that um, I think people's questions are being answered through the questions that are being asked by others. I also think that in a generation that's uh, kind of uh, leashed to their keyboards uh, of all sizes, um, I think our I think younger people have just gotten to the point where they. Uh, are more comfortable uh, writing. That's why we get the questions that come in via email and through our, our app. Um, so I think there's a couple of reasons. But but there's something else that happened. I don't know. I think it was at the beginning of this year when uh, talking on the phone became um, uh, against the law while you were driving. So the 1st of, of January this year. And, and we noticed almost instantly, way back at the, at the change, that we're getting fewer calls because most of the people are listening to this program in their car. And because they're listening in their car and they don't want to call, uh, they don't want to violate the law, uh, I really believe that these kind of cell phone laws have changed talk radio in general. Uh, let alone uh, on a Christian program. So um, I think there's all kinds of reasons. Uh, I do also agree with you, though, that uh, people get tired of hearing about politics. And uh, if I wanted more people to call, all I would have to do is inflame people, uh, give my opinions about politics or... Uh, and I've just purposed in my heart, uh, we're not going to do that. Our message is Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Um, and uh, uh, I think I'm very direct with questions that deal with politics. I'm also very direct uh, on controversial issues. Uh, and, and people know that I'm not going to enter into controversy just for the sake of, of getting phone calls. I'm not trying to pump ratings here. We're not trying to sell anything here. So um, I think there is a, a degree of, of fatigue, um, but uh, the one thing that we know is that our, our listeners, uh, our, the numbers of people that are listening are greater than ever before, and it's going out uh, literally all over this country and in, into some other parts of the world. We've got regular listeners um, every day from almost every continent. So... Um, I think it's easier to sit back and listen. Eventually, the questions are going to get get asked. Thank you for being nice. I appreciate it. Let me see what we've got now. Here's a question from Linda. Uh, pastor Ron, how should I approach my pastor who believes in King James Version only and that all other versions are of the devil? Hey, Linda, before I answer your question, let me say one other thing. Uh, the reason I keep asking for phone calls, I, I think that's part of my, my job here, to encourage people to call. But um, truthfully, you guys are more interesting than I am. And I just think an hour program where I just drone on and on and on is not nearly as um, as informative or as entertaining as when you get involved. So that's why we ask. Linda, your question. Um, if your pastor is that firm in his King James Version only stance, um, firm enough to say all other versions are of the devil, uh, I, I think you really ought to start looking for a new church, Linda. Um, if you want to approach your pastor in kindness and respect and say, you know, um, um, there's no logic to your King James only stance. If you like the King James, great. I like it too. But... To say it's the only version, all the other versions are satanic, is judgmental, it's harsh, and maybe worse of all, it's illogical, it makes no sense. Uh, and then you say, if, if you're going to continue proclaiming this, then what I'm going to do is find another church. And you don't do it in a threatening way, you just do it in a kind, loving way. And I think that would be my approach, but believe me, there's no love in the King James only stance. 
Not only is there no love, I said earlier, there's no logic. That makes zero sense at all. Their position, if you take it to its logical conclusion, is that there is, before 1611, there was no Bible. Logically, you have to conclude that if the King James is the only authorized version of the Bible, the only one written by God, then every other Bible written in a foreign language is also in error. And I, I, I just think it's a, it's a church that is going to be bent on legalism, um, or it's a church that's going to be super crazy, hyper charismatic. Uh, and I just don't think it's a healthy place to be, Linda. I just don't think it's a healthy place to be. So approach him in love, with kindness, and respect. But I think it's important. I think we pastors, when we get sort of short-sighted in an area, um, we need people in our body who come to us and say, well, you know, Pastor, you said this, but I don't think you should have. And just want to be sure that your heart is okay with this, that kind of thing. Um, we we pastors, we get on bandwagons as well, and we uh, we sometimes fall from a position where we're representing Jesus in a position where we're representing our own opinions. Very, very dangerous um, belief. I love the King James. I don't want anybody to call me or email me with criticism that I'm speaking ill of the King James Version of the Bible. I love it. I've said this before that uh, in my particular um, situation, I'm, I'm visually impaired. And so more than half the time now, I look down at my notes and I can't see them. And um, King James comes out because that's the Bible I had when I got saved and I loved it. And the language is so memorable, it was easier to memorize. And my church all knows that if uh, I, I'm quoting King James rather than the 1984 version of NIV, it's because I can't see right now, but they can follow along. Uh, it's a wonderful Bible. It's just not the only Bible. 340-9585 for a little bit of time that we've got left, about five minutes, six minutes. Uh, Matthew asks a big question. Did God choose me or did I choose him? Matthew, the answer is yes to both of those questions. We were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world were laid. God chose me. I wouldn't have chosen me, Matthew, but God chose me. And he chose me because he knew, 1 Peter chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, he chose me because he knew there would be a time when I chose him back. The invitation to be saved, to accept Jesus Christ, goes out to all the world. God knows those who are his. He knows those who are going to be his. The, the Romans 8.29 passage, especially Matthew, uh, almost makes me cry when I think about it. It means that all those years, I'm a late-in-life Christian. I got saved just a couple of months before my 40th birthday. And that verse means that in all of those years of blaspheming God, of sinning against God, of, of misrepresenting him to Paula, he never turned his love away from me because he knew there would be a day in February of 1991 when I would be on my face on a street in Upland, California surrendering my heart to him. That means he waited patiently for me and when I gave my heart to him he said, that's what I've been waiting for. So on that day I chose him but he chose me before the foundations of the world were laid. So the answer to both questions is yes. And there doesn't have to be any tension between those two things, Matthew. God chooses us according to his foreknowledge. We choose God when the Spirit of God convicts us and draws us to Jesus. So the answer is yes. Here is an anonymous question. I don't like these questions. Um... My mother is gay, and I fear for salvation. Should I be afraid? Uh, yeah, you should. Pray for your mother. Tell her about Jesus. Even if she doesn't want to hear, let her know that because you love Jesus, you're going to talk about him. Let her know that you love her, but the way she's living is sin. 
And you can show her in the Bible, people who live like this, Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you know, Anonymous, the way that I have found uh, is the, 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 the best approach is to tell people that I really deeply care about, that I can't imagine heaven without you. I love you so much that I have to keep telling you about Jesus because he's the only way to get to heaven. And if, as is often typical, they express their resentment about God or generalities, of God is going to judge me just because of who I am, um, just challenge them to find out for themselves. Throw away the, the tired arguments of this world and challenge them to find out for themselves. And then pray. And then pray. Yeah, you should fear for her salvation. Um, you love your mom, but you can't agree with the way she's living. And so you're going to spend all the time and energy you have with her to tell her the truth. But pray, pray, pray. It's amazing what God will do. And by the way, the other thing you can do, and I don't know whether you're a, a man or a woman, um, but but whatever your relationship to her is, be filled with the joy of the Spirit. Because I can tell you that's not what her experience is. Her life is filled with pain and conviction and anger and guilt. And even if she's a good actor, when she sees your joy as a joy that won't go away, when she sees you standing firm for Jesus, when she sees God beginning to pour out his blessings and you become more and more like Christ, the Holy Spirit's going to knock on the door of her heart, basically to say, duh, you're watching it with your own eyes. And as I said, keep praying. Thanks for tuning in. It's been a good week on the program. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Wherever you go to church, be a part of the church. Find somebody who's hurting and let them know how much Jesus loves them. Lord willing, I'll be back next week. is Thanksgiving week. I'll be back on Monday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.